Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I am continuing my book review of The Lives of Bees by Thomas Seeley and this chapter is chapter 10 which is all about colony defence. Before I get into the book I wanted to give a little bit of homesteading news. The chickens are continuing to molt, so they're continuing to shed their feathers. I'm down to about one to four eggs a day from eight hens. I do technically have 10 hens, but Agatha and Bubbles, who are two of my special needs girls, they don't lay anymore, so they don't get included in the count, bless them. This is actually my favorite time of year when it comes to the chickens. Even though they're producing less eggs, they're a little irritable because of the new feathers coming in and they need a little extra care, but it's still my favourite time of year because it was in the fall that I found Babette, who was my first chicken who I found in a parking lot of an Aldi grocery store. And she's the one who propelled me into this crazy world of chicken keeping. And so this season always makes me think of her. She has sadly passed on now, but she totally changed my life, as weird as that might be to say about a little foundling chicken, but it is true. Um, I met some really amazing people through her rescue, and I ended up with the chickens that I have now. So it's this time of year where, even though I'm pretty busy, I try and take a little extra time to sit out watch my chickens go about their business, watch them just doing their little chickeny things. I just, I just enjoy them more at this time of year. Agatha, my old lady hen, is continuing with the pain meds and she seems pretty comfortable. Um, I've also noticed a dramatic decrease in lice since her frontline application and I'm cautiously optimistic that this might be the long-term solution that I was looking for. I did a little bit of reading about how regularly I can apply Frontline. My only experience with it is with my dogs. It's a monthly treatment, although I don't apply it during the winter months when fleas and ticks, here at least because it's so cold, are not in the environment. I wasn't really sure that it could be applied monthly to chickens, and I've tried to look into it and I haven't found a definitive answer. So it's something I'm going to keep looking into. If I can find the answer, I will let you know here. And for anyone who's not familiar with Frontline, the chemical name is Ivermectin and it is available as um, either a topical treatment, an injectable, I believe that's how it's mainly used in cattle, or an oral solution. And I'm using the version that I get for my dogs, which is a topical, but I'm just using one, maybe two drops on my chicken and I was using the smaller dog formula, so the one that goes up to 40 pounds, I believe it is. I'm not recommending that you go ahead and do this yourself. I'm just letting you know my experiences. As always, run any new medication by your uh, avian vet before you use it. Speaking of Agatha, um, she's back to running whenever she sees me coming up. So I have to either sneak up on her or shake the treats but even the highest value treats apparently are not good enough these days and she is running to the back of the coop where it's really hard for me to get her and she's just being so difficult and it's so funny to watch her she has kind of a bobbing jumpy run because of her arthritis and I know it's because she's uncomfortable 
But it's kind of funny how she's just reached this point in her life where she is done with me. She does not want to deal with me anymore. Although I will say that once I do scoop her up, she takes her meds like a little champ and she's actually very sweet and uh, gentle and just an overall wonderful little hen. And, and she's probably my favorite because I've just spent so much time with her at this point. As for my bees, uh, if you followed me on Instagram, you will see that I have had some not great stuff happening in the apiary and I've been feeling a little discouraged. Uh, but onwards and upwards. So basically, we had a very, very long and hard dearth this year. It was very hot, it was dry, and as a result, there wasn't a lot of nectar. And the full flow started, which made me optimistic that the aggression that I had been dealing with and the very problematic robbing behaviour was going to end. And it has a little, at least the aggression is much less, but the robbing continues. But I had to go in, I had to get my mite tests done because I am already behind on them and I just couldn't put it off any longer. You know, I feel these cooler evenings, cooler mornings, you know, winter's going to be here before we know it. I need to prepare my hives. So I do the alcohol wash method, which is basically where you go into the hive, you find your queen, you put her somewhere safe. I usually take out an empty super and I move the frame with the queen on it into that super. And then you go into the brood area and you select a frame of brood. And you want this because mites breed in the brood cells and you want the nurse bees who have the most contact with the brood. And therefore, if you're going to find mites, it's going to be on those bees. You take that frame out, you shake it or you knock the frame or you brush or however you do it you get those bees into some kind of container you take a half measuring cup you scoop up a half of bees I have a uh, varroa mite testing kit it's basically a little plastic jar with a uh, little basket in it and you fill that up with diluted isopropyl alcohol you dump the half a cup of bees into that little basket you put the lid on and you basically shake it and this does kill the bees And you rinse them around in this alcohol wash for maybe like a minute, set it aside and wait. And then at the end, you pick it up and you look at the base of the jar and any varroa that were on the bees should have fallen to the bottom. And then you count them and you work out how many varroa there are per sample of bees. And a half cup measuring is about 300 bees. So when I talk about my mite levels, I do it as mites to bees so the bee number is always 300 and the mite level is what's going to vary so before I go into my mite levels I just wanted to say that I went back through my notes I do keep a hive journal and I felt that I hadn't been in the hives for what felt like months but actually looking at my notes it was from mid-August to late September or mid to late September And the reason I wasn't going in is because of the robbing and because of the aggression. And my concern there was that the hives were so active, they were so aggressive, particularly with each other in terms of robbing, that my concern was that if I pushed through, they might end up killing each other because a strong hive can relatively quickly overpower a weak hive. And I have nucleus colonies, which would be particularly vulnerable 
And, you know, I knew some colonies are smaller than others and some aren't as strong and all that kind of stuff. So I made the decision to leave them to it. I also considered, should I be feeding? Because I knew the dearth was hitting them hard. But again, my concern was if I start putting food out, even though I use like internal feeders, I was worried it was increased robbing behavior and I was worried that it would make it even harder to like quickly peek in the hives because the smell of the syrup or pollen patty or whatever would fill the air and it would increase the robbing. So one thing I did find that I could do recently was go out when it's cooler in the mornings. Uh, I think that even though more of the bees are home then, the cooler air makes the smell of the honey seem not to travel as far. So I have more time to work the hive before other bees realize that a hive is open and they have a good opportunity to get in there and steal honey. And this was particularly important for me to figure out because, as I said, you need to identify the queen before you do this kind of mic check because you don't want to accidentally kill her. And sometimes that means opening a hive completely, taking it apart box by box, going through it to find her. And when the hive is really teeming with bees, it can be tricky to find the queen, particularly because I only have one queen that is marked. Um, all my others, I don't mark them. So it can take me a while. But getting on to mite testing results, we're going to start with hive one and go from there. So this year is bad, basically. Hive number one, which is my Ohio genetics, tested as eight mites to 300 bees, which is within the full range, which is often listed as six to nine to 300. Although at this level, I, I do recommend treatment. And so I went ahead and treated them. Now, remember this number of eight to 300, because this is the lowest mite count that I currently have. Hive number two, which is my Southern US queen. I actually tested her first on the 12th of September and got one mite to 300 bees, which is exceptionally low. But then because I went to treat to test hive number one and found out they had a higher level, I went back into hive number two um, just yesterday, which was the 27th, and they now have a mite count of 12 mites to 300 bees, which is very high. So in just 15 days, they went from one in 300 to 12 in 300. Hive number three, which is my Saskatraz daughter queen, had a count of 12 to 300. Hive number four, which is my Saskatraz queen, had a count of nine to 300. Hive number five, which was previously nuke number three, but I moved into a deep body with a medium. And the genetics of hive number five are either Ohio or Saskatraz, tested as 12 to 300. And just a quick note on this one, I'm actually leaning to this hive having Saskatraz genetics, aka they chose a Saskatraz egg to pull this queen from, because I noticed a trend among my Saskatraz colonies of keeping drones for longer. Only my Saskatraz colonies had any drones in them, and one was actually still producing drones. There were capped 
drone cells in there. And for this time of year, that's quite unusual. And I'm going to touch back on this in just a second. So for my nucleus colonies, it was a mixed bag. Nuke number one, which is my Ohio genetics again, is looking really good. The brood buildup looks good. They still have honey stores, even though they went through the dearth and I didn't feed them. And the mite count is pretty good at six mites to 300 bees. Nucleus colony number two, which has completely unknown genetics, it could be Ohio, my Southern or Saskatraz, that nuke is a complete mess. Uh, the queen, who was actually my favourite from the nukes that I produced this year, had swarmed and I completely missed this swarm. I didn't see anything and I am home all the time and usually outside, so I don't know how I missed it. But she's gone and there's a new smaller queen in there. She actually might be a virgin, which is bad news because this is not the, the best time of year for her to be mating because there's not that many drones left. This colony also just looks really shoddy. So it went from before the dearth with the old queen, it was beautiful and full and building up nicely and I was in love with it. Now it has a spotty brood pattern, there are barely any stores left and the mite count is dangerously high at 19 mites to 300 bees. Um, it's my understanding that if a hive reaches 21 to 300 bees, that's basically a dead hive walking. And it's probably in your best interest to kill that hive before it implodes and those bees, uh, any survivor bees, go out, drift to other colonies and take the mites with them. Now at 19 to 300 bees, I am playing a little bit of a risk by keeping this nucleus colony, but I am treating it aggressively and I am feeding them heavily and I'm going to keep an eye on them. If this count doesn't lower, if it goes above 19, then I will euthanize them. But fingers crossed that I got in there in time. I'm not super optimistic about this nucleus colony's chances at this time, but I'm going to keep you up to date about how things go. So thinky thoughts. Looking at this, what I can see is that my Ohio genetics have the lowest mite count, which is quite interesting. Next in line is my Saskatraz mother queen, but her daughter queen colonies have high levels. And I admit that this surprises me because part of what attracted me to the Saskatraz lineage is that they are supposed to have greater mite resistance. So it's very interesting to me that my Ohio queen is doing so well, as is her daughter, then followed by my Saskatraz mother queen, whereas her daughters aren't doing as well. Something else that I've considered is robbing, and I keep on mentioning this, and it's been super bad this year. And I'm looking at reasons why that might be the case. And some of the questions I have are, is it because of just how bad the dearth has been? Is it that my Saskatraz bees are the robber bees because this is my first year having Saskatraz bees and it's also the first year I've seen so much highly aggressive robbing. Plus, as we saw in Seedies the Lives of Bees, robbing facilitates disease and mite transmission. Is it possible that my Saskatraz bees are robbing other hives, getting infested with mites and bringing them back to the colony, which is why their colony levels have been so high? I also learned in 
chapter 10, which I'll be discussing today about how drifting, which is when a bee returns to the wrong colony by accident, can also increase mite transmission. And something I've mentioned a couple of times is that I ended up with two hives very close together, much closer than I was comfortable with, but I just couldn't get a new hive stand in time. And I have been able to go ahead and separate those two hives now and move them further apart. And this is definitely something that I will be keeping in mind in the future. I will try and be better prepared with hive stand materials so that if I need to do an emergency split, I will be able to place the new hive far enough away from the others. And coming back to this idea of robbing, Looking at the jump in mites from hive number two within just a 15 day period, and then also the high levels in all my other colonies, I do wonder if a colony or a couple of colonies in my area collapsed due to mites, whether it was a managed colony or a wild colony. And if it collapsed, then knowing that robbing has been so common this year and considering that perhaps my Saskatraz bees engage in more robbing I don't know that for sure but let's just say that for now let's look at it as a possibility is it possible that a colony or more exploded in my area and died my hives went and robbed it and during the robbing process brought back mites and therefore increased the levels to what I'm seeing now I've also considered things like local uh, genetics. So my Saskatraz queen that I got in the package was open mated in California. So her offspring have a mixture of genes. So all her worker bees and her daughter queens, they're not 100% Saskatraz. So if the mite resistance is a Saskatraz trait, I can't say how much of that her daughters get. And it's possible because her daughters then open mated here in Ohio, her offspring have less Saskatraz genetics and potentially less of whatever is leading to mite resistance. So that might be why the Saskatraz queen is, or mother queen, seems to be doing better than her daughter queens. I just really hope that if they don't have the mite resistance genes, they do have the ability to overwinter well because that was another reason that I was interested in them. And then I want to go back to what I touched on before about how my Saskatraz bees have more drones. All of the Saskatraz colonies have more drones this late into the year. And as I mentioned, one colony is actually producing more drones. And as we know, drone cells are preferred by Varroa mites so this is likely contributing to why their levels are higher. And I've also considered things like mite count versus resistance. And by this, what I mean is that mite resistance in honeybees is demonstrated predominantly in behavioral traits, such as leg biting, the uh, which is biting the legs off varroa, increased grooming, so grooming them off themselves, opening up brood cells that have been infested by mites or simply chewing holes into the brood cells to detect mites and then pulling out any infested pupa. But something I do wonder is, is it possible that 
resistance in some lines could also mean that they can coexist with higher mite counts than we might think. And this is me completely just speculating, I'm just spitballing here, but I am very interested to see whether the Saskatraz bees with the higher mite loads do suffer deleterious effects moving into winter, or whether they are able to cope with the higher mite loads somehow. <laughs> so I'm just I'm just thinking aloud here. Um of course I have treated all my colonies. Um the first treatment I used was Apivar. I used it last year. I had very good results with it. It is the um it is a treatment that goes into the brood nest. It's like a little plastic strip. You use two per deep box. You hang them in the brood nest and uh, you leave it in for six weeks because the bees walk on it and then through traveling through the hive, they disperse the active ingredient, which is amitraz, which is a miticide and it has a kill rate of 99%. Uh, I'm also using Apigard this year. Um, this is like my test year for Apigard. I've never used it before. The active ingredient in this is thymol, which is a naturally occurring substance derived from thyme. And both these treatments require that honey supers be removed before you apply the treatment. And that was a huge pain in my butt because of the robbing situation that I have been dealing with all summer. Um, it's, it's definitely been a challenge, but I have gone ahead and I've taken those honey supers off. I have not taken any honey. I am saving it because... I want to give it back to them once the treatments are done to give them the boost that they are probably going to need to get through the winter. Now, I chose these two treatments because I read a lot about different treatment options. And even though I knew it would be a pain to have to take the honey supers off, both of these treatments, Apigard and Apivar, have lower rates of colony absconding and queen death than some other versions of treatment. So for me, it seemed like the right choice. However, considering how unprecedented robbing was this year and how unprepared I was for it, in future, I think I'm going to buy formic acid treatment, which is applied as strips because that can be applied even when honey supers are on. So even if there's a lot of robbing, I can just open things up real quick, smack the strips down, close things up and let the bees get on with it. The reason I have avoided formic acid up to this point is because it has higher rates of absconding and it has higher rates of queen death. I'm also looking into oxalid acyl dribble method. Now that's another one where the honey supers have to come off, but it's often used in the spring before the flow starts and it looks like it could be a good treatment option for my hives. So we're just going to have to see, but those are the two treatments that I'm considering using next year. Um, for those who have Apivar, I can feed during this time. So I am feeding them with a heavy syrup. So two parts sugar to one part water as well as bee pro patties which is like a sugar and substitute pollen mix for the ones with apigard you actually want the bees to ingest that that's how the treatment is received so 
I haven't put food on for the colonies with Apigard apart from Nucleus 2 because they are doing so badly that I think they will eat the Apigard and they'll eat the pollen patty because they really need it. I'm not feeding them syrup though. So that's where I'm with my bees. It's been a crazy, crazy summer and I have often felt very discouraged. I have worried that I messed everything up, that I've let my girls down. I am very concerned about getting my colonies where I want them to be for winter. And I know that as we move through autumn, I'm going to have to make some difficult decisions about whether some of the colonies should be merged, which would mean choosing a queen that needs to go and combining two wheat colonies to hopefully produce a strong enough colony to get through the winter. So watch this space. I will be back in the hives in four weeks to do another mite test, um, as well as just popping in to check on like how the treatment's going. I will say that I had the Apivar strips on first and when I went out five days after applying the Apivar strips, I looked at the bottom board that like pulls out and I did see a number of dead mites. So Apivar strips are already working and the fingers crossed that Apigard are doing the same and I will keep you guys updated. Now we're going to move on to the book review and we are almost done with the lives of bees. This is chapter 10. It's the second to last one. And it is all about colony defence. And this is actually very, very timely. A lot of what is discussed here is very, it really rang a bell for me. And it really kind of ties into what I was just talking about in terms of my experience with my bees this year. So I am optimistic that you will also find it useful. And I'm sure you're going to find it interesting because we get into some really neat little tidbits of information here. So as always, the chapter opens with a quote. This is from the book Walking by Henry David Thoreau that was originally published in 1862. Life consists with wildness. The most alive is the wildest, which is pretty nice. And I also want to quote Thomas Seeley directly here because this is really the perfect introduction to the chapter. And I couldn't sum it up better than he has. So to quote Thomas Seeley, every living system faces a legion of predators, parasites and pathogens, each of which is equipped with a sophisticated toolkit for penetrating the defences of its prey or host. In the case of a honeybee colony, there are several hundred species ranging from viruses to black bears whose members are forever trying to breach the bees defences. End quote. So what makes a honeybee colony prone to predation? The first thing that comes to mind, of course, is the honey stores, which is a valuable source of calories and therefore energy for insects and mammals alike. Then we have brood and adult bees. These are good sources of protein. The nest temperature. It's maintained at such a toasty level that uh, bacteria, fungi and viruses can really thrive in that environment. And then you have the fact that it's a stationary nest. Bees invest so much work in building beeswax comb and then filling it with brood and their food stores that fleeing during predation is difficult or even completely impossible. 
Only a very great danger could make them abandon the nest. We actually saw in previous chapters that it's looking now that the old belief that fire or and therefore smoke makes them flee is incorrect. And they're actually retreating deeper into the nest to try and like weather through the storm. So what we see from bees is that they have evolved to defend themselves and their nest in a myriad of different ways. Just as we see with other wild animals, honeybees live with endemic infections of parasites and pathogens that have evolved to survive. If a colony undergoes environmental stress, this delicate balance of host and parasite slash disease is unbalanced and the colony can then fail. If we think about the role of stress on the immune system of many animals, including birds and reptiles, we see that stress can lower the immune system and its defenses, allowing a parasite or pathogen to then surge in numbers. In a similar way, we see that some beekeeping practices provide undue stress on the honeybee and thereby lowers its ability to fight off disease. One example of this would be American fowl brood and chalk brood. In nature, a wild honeybee colony will clean old comb after winter. In our managed hives, old comb is often stored away from the bees and given back in the spring, thus potentially reintroducing the aforementioned pathogens back into the colony. The classic example, and most problematic, is that of the transmission of the dreaded varroa mite. This began in the late 1800s when Russian beekeepers began exporting the Western or European honeybee, Apis mellifera, from Europe to the Primorsky region of the Russian Far East. This placed the uh, European honeybee in close proximity to colonies of the Eastern honeybee, Apis serrana. This in turn allowed a host shift of the ectoparasitic mite Varroa jacobsoni from the eastern honeybee to the western. Over time, this might evolved into the nasty varroa destructor that we know and struggle with today, and which has caused untold damages to our colonies of European honeybees. Since the varroa mite feeds on the fat bodies of bees, viruses are easily transmitted from the mite to the bee, as well as between colonies. And a quick note here, Seeley actually says in his book that varroa mites feed on the blood of bees, since this was the common belief until Dr. Samuel Ramsey actually proved that varroa are feeding on the fat bodies. But this uh, study by Dr. Ramsey had not come out at the time that Seeley was writing and then published his book, which is why you'll see him refer to varroas feeding on the hemolymph or blood of bees. The point is, though, that when the varroa feeds, they are able to introduce various viruses and disease. This transmission of viruses and disease has been one of the greatest effects of the varroa infestation and has led to virulent viruses such as the deformed wing virus. So chapter 10 looks at the differences in how wild and managed colonies of honeybees are affected by disease and parasites. Most tellingly, we will see that despite lack of human intervention when it comes to pathogens, wild colonies demonstrate greater success in colony defence than our managed apiaries. 
The next section is entitled Living Without versus With Treatments for Varroa Destructor. Treating our colonies with mitocides has been common practice since the 1970s in Europe and the 1980s in North America. These treatments have been essential to the survival of colonies battling the virulent varroa mite. However, in the last 10 years or so, beekeepers and researchers have reported colonies of honeybees that appear to be thriving without the use of mitocides. Honeybee colonies in the Primorsky Cray region of Russia, where the host shift of Varroa jacobsoni originally occurred, which is what led to the evolution of Varroa destructor, these colonies were naturally the first affected by this new parasite. Colony loss was originally huge, but over time, natural selection led to colonies that demonstrated resistance to the Varroa mite. The resistance mechanisms of these bees were studied by Thomas E. Rinderer at the Honeybee Breeding, Genetics and Physiology Research Laboratory in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. In the late 1990s, studies indicated that these bees demonstrated an increased ability to groom varroa mites off their bodies, as well as removing infested pupa from their cells. There was also some indication that they might be biting the legs off the varroa, <laughs> varroa, varroa? <laughs> that they might be biting the legs off the varroa after they had groomed them from their bodies. As a result, mite infestation were far slower uh, in these Russian colonies compared to US ones or really any other population that has not undergone natural selection for resistance. Although the Russian bees prove that Apis mellifera can evolve over time to develop resistance to the Varroa mite, this process was not recorded and so it cannot be said exactly how quickly these resistant traits developed. A study in Sweden, however, demonstrates just how swiftly resistance can evolve in our beloved honeybee. Led by the late Ingemar Fries, the goal of the study was to see whether varroa mites will, and I'm quoting here, eradicate European honeybees in an isolated area under Nordic conditions, where no mite control or swarm control of honeybee colonies are implemented. In 1999, the study began. The researchers located the experiment on the southern end of Gotland, a 3,200 square kilometre or 1,200 square mile island in the Baltic Sea. 150 genetically diverse colonies were distributed among seven apiaries, and each colony was housed in a two-storey Swedish hive, which is similar to the Langstroth hive. Once moved to the locations, each colony was left completely unmanaged, which, with the exception of feeding before winter if honey stores were insufficient. Queens were also marked so that queen turnover via swarming or supersedure could be recorded. Originally, these colonies did not have varroa mites, so the researchers introduced them by giving each colony a thousand bees from mainland colonies that were heavily infested. The colonies were checked four times a year to assess winter survival chances, colony size in early spring, colony swarming and mite infestation level in late October. Bait hives were put up to catch any swarms and these were then housed in vacant hives within the various apiaries. 
Going into the first winter of the study, my infestation levels were low for all colonies, and the colony mortality rate over winter was also low at around 5%. The colonies were thus strong enough the following summer, which was the year 2000, to swarm in high numbers, keeping the colony numbers at the apiary stable. By October of that same year, the mite levels had risen and winter mortality increased to nearly 30%. In the summer of 2001, there was noticeably less swarming and mite levels continued to rise through to October. That winter, colony mortality was almost 80%. In 2002, the third summer of the study, there were very few colonies left alive and those were so weak that they couldn't swarm. By October, only 21 of the original colonies remained, and they had high mite infestation levels and continued to do poorly through the winter, with a mortality rate of 57%. By the summer of 2003, there was some improvement. Although only eight colonies remained, one was strong enough to swarm, and the average mite level had begun to decline. Even better, that winter, the mortality rate was just 12%. This trend continued, and in the summer of 2004, more than half of the colonies were strong enough to swarm, the mite levels were their lowest ever, and their winter mortality was 18%. So this means that within just five years, we can see how natural selection allowed for these honeybee colonies to increase their resistance to varroa. And that is pretty darn incredible. Since the spring of 2005, the remaining colonies from the study have been left entirely alone and were just monitored over the next 10 years through to 2015 to see how they would fare. It consisted of 20 to 30 entirely self-sustaining colonies. That's pretty remarkable. So from 150 original colonies, we eventually end up with 20 to 30 that are entirely self-sustaining and showing resistance to Varroa. Sadly, the genetics of the bees in this experiment were not studied, so it's impossible to examine what changes may have occurred to result in these survivor bees. However, comparing the Gotland survivor bees to those on the mainland showed that the Gotland bees had an 82% lower rate of mite population growth, regardless of the mite's source, whether they were introduced from the mainland or whether they were surviving within the Gotland population. And this is important to note because it indicates that the ability to survive the varroa infestation was due to an increased resistance in the bees as opposed to reduced virulence of the mites. So basically the mites weren't getting any weaker, the mites weren't being more gentle, the mites were the same nasty pest they've always been, it was the bees who were changing and evolving to cope with the infestation. Seeley points out that there are just two stages at which honeybees can effectively take action to decrease the reproductive success of varroa mites. The first is when the female mites are moving around and feeding on the adult bees, which is called the phoretic stage. And the second is when the female mites are sealed in the brood cells containing pupa, which is the reproductive stage. 
No evidence was found to indicate that the Gotland survivor bees were attacking mites by biting off their legs and antenna, thus disrupting them at stage one. So this leaves stage two, the reproductive stage, when the mites are sealed inside with the brood. And this led to the idea that the Gotland bees were adept at locating the mites within the cell. Further support of this comes from examining the reproductive success of mites found in the Gotland colonies. Around 50% of these mites produced viable and mated daughter mites, compared to 80% of the mites examined in the mainland colonies. So the mainland colony mites were more successful at producing mated daughter mites. Recent studies have shown that uncapping and recapping a brood cell with a mite inside of it is effective at, re at reducing the reproductive success of the varroa mite. Therefore, it can be assumed that the Gotland survivor bees have evolved greater varroa sensitive hygiene, which is abbreviated as VSH, in this area. So basically, they are detecting the mites in the cells and they are acting in a way to disrupt the mites reproductive process, whether that is uncapping and recapping the brood cell or actually removing the infested pupa. Interestingly, the Gotland colonies tend to be smaller, swarm more frequently and raise fewer drones, all of which can aid in reducing mite infestation. Smaller colonies means less brood to parasitize and arguably greater success in the adults grooming each other. Swarming causes a natural brood break and drones are the preferred host cells for the varroa mite. All of these factors likely contribute to these survivor bees and their success. Seeley likens these Gotland survivor bees to the wild colonies that he studied within the Arno forest. As stated in chapter two, Seeley first discovered Varroa in his own colonies in 1994. Just 10 years later, in 2004, he discovered that the wild colonies in the area already demonstrated traits that led to mite resistance. So again, we can see a rapid evolution of completely untreated and unmanaged colonies. In 2011, Seeley again decided to examine the level of varroa mite infestations in wild colonies of the Arno forest. With the help of a Cornell student, Sean Griffin, he conducted a third survey of the wild colonies, using the same bee lining methods to locate them as he'd done previously in 1978 and 2002. Seeley's first goal was to locate as many wild colonies as possible and collect a sample of 100 worker bees from each. His second goal was to find the nearest apiaries outside of the Arno forest and collect the same sample size from them as well. Genetic analyses of the samples were conducted by Seeley's colleagues, Deborah A. Delaney and David R. Tarpey. The goal was to learn whether the wild colonies were entirely self-sustaining or if they survived in part due to immigration from the managed and therefore treated colonies outside of the forest. From late July to September, Seeley and Griffin located a total of 10 wild colonies and collected the 100 worker bee sample from each. They then looked for managed colonies within 6 kilometres or 3.7 miles of the forest boundaries and they found two, with each containing about 20 colonies. One was located one kilometre or 0.6 miles from the southwestern boundary line of the forest, 
while the other was 5.2 kilometres, or 3.2 miles, from the forest northeastern corner. Both happened to belong to the same owner, who was a commercial beekeeper, and he gave his permission for the 100 worker bee sample to be taken from 10 colonies at each apiary location. The genetic analysis of the sample indicated a large difference between the wild colonies and the managed ones, and demonstrated that even the closest managed colonies had little influence on the genetics of the wild colonies. In 2011, Seeley was visited by a former Cornell student, Alexander or Sasha Mikheyev, Mikheyev? I hope I pronounced that correctly, who learned about the project and asked whether Seeley happened to have any samples of bees that had been collected before the arrival of Varroa mites to the forest. Luckily, Seeley actually did have bees that were collected in 1977. Some of these bees had been collected via bait hives placed within the forest, while others were sourced from wild hives found in trees, barns and farmhouses south of Ithaca. In order to do a proper comparison of these 1977 pre-Varroa bees and 2011 collected bees, Seely wanted to collect them from similar locations, which he went out and did do. Did do. <laughs> which he went out and did. In just a few days, he was able to get samples from 22 colonies living in these types of nesting environments, so trees, barns and farmhouses. Ultimately, Seeley was able to give Sasha 64 samples, 32 of which were collected 20 years before the arrival of Varroa, and the remaining 32 collected 20 years after. So what did the genetic analysis reveal? First, the mitochondrial DNA, DNA passed from mother to offspring, showed a dramatic loss in diversity between 1977 and 2011. In fact, nearly all the old mitochondrial lineages were now extinct. Of those lineages that had survived, none were found in the commercial stocks of bees. This demonstrates that the wild colonies went through a genetic bottleneck sometime between 1977 and 2011. It also indicates that the wild colonies suffered a collapse in population after the introduction of the Varroa mite, but enough survived that the 2011 colonies can be traced back to just a small number of queens. Looking at the nuclear DNA of the bees revealed that since 1977, there has been some introduction of genes from Africa, probably through colonies moved by beekeepers from Florida to New York. The results also showed significant changes in the bees' genes, about half of these genes relating to the bees' development. This indicates that the surviving colonies developed resistance mechanisms that are in some part due to changes in the development programs of their members. The bees sampled in 2011 are also consistently smaller than those from 1977. In 2015, one of Seeley's students, David T. Peck, decided to investigate the mechanisms of mite resistance of the bees that lived within the Arno forest. As mentioned previously, intervention can occur during the mites' phoretic phase, when the mites moving about and feeding on the adult bees, and during the reproductive phase, which is when the mite is sealed in a brood cell with the bee pupa. 
In the phoretic phase, mites can be groomed from bees and then damaged in some way, such as chewing off their legs to immobilize them or biting off their antenna, which disorients them and has a similar effect. In the reproductive phase, bees can uncap the mite infested cells and remove the pupa inside or simply uncap and recap the cell, which also disrupts the mite's reproduction. And this is what's known as VSH or varroa sensitive hygiene. David T. Peck started his study by capturing swarms using bait hives, which were then moved into an isolated apiary outside of the forest. He then examined the captured bees for signs of grooming and chewing of the mites, as well as signs of cell uncapping. When compared to bees kept in a control colony, which was sourced from outside the Arno forest and from managed hives, Peck found that the wild Arno forest bees showed a greater grooming and chewing response, as well as a greater propensity for VSH. In fact, he found that the wild colonies had uncapped and recapped as much as 40%, 40% of their brood cells, which is dramatically higher than what was seen in the control colony. Seeley points out that what is most critical here is that the wild colonies in the Arno forest are displaying multiple behaviours that support Varroa resistance. To quote him directly, in short, they are deploying a diverse set of behavioural resistance weapons against Varroa Destructor, not just a single silver bullet. Bee breeders, take note. This next section is called Living with Colonies Far Apart versus Close Together. One of the greatest changes humans have inflicted on honeybee living is our propensity to keep their hives clustered closely together. In the wild, we have seen that colonies are spaced far apart, often greater than one kilometre or 0.6 miles from another colony. In our apiaries, we often line up our hives so that they're right next to each other, sometimes just inches apart. This closeness of living increases the risk of robbing behaviour, disease transmission and even reproductive issues, such as a virgin queen returning to the wrong hive and subsequently being killed. By keeping our colonies so close together, we have also inadvertently sped up the evolution of extremely virulent strains of parasites and disease. Through horizontal transmission, the spread of disease between unrelated colonies, we now must contend with strains of pathogens and parasites that have evolved rapidly in order to boost their chance of reproductive success. Since the pathogens and parasites reproduce at a much faster rate than the bees, they are able to basically outcompete the honeybees in this area, leaving the bees to play evolutionary catch-up. Three good examples of this phenomena are varroa mites, American fowl brood, and the deformed wing virus. Horizontal transmission of disease can occur due to beekeeper management, such as when we take frames from one colony and give it to another, which is a common practice for boosting a weak colony, aiding in queen rearing, and a number of other things. But it also can occur due to drifting, which is what we call it when an adult bee returns to the wrong hive by accident. Close proximity of colonies increases the process of drifting especially when hives are positioned in a line so that all the entrances face the same direction and are lined up side by side. In this configuration, more than 40% of bees can drift to another colony, which rapidly increases the spread of disease transmission. 
Seeley decided to conduct an experiment to examine how the spacing of colonies can affect disease and pathogen transmission. In June 2011, he established two groups of 12 small colonies in a designated natural area owned by Cornell University. One group had the hives arranged in a row, facing the same direction, and with less than one metre or three feet between them. The colonies in the second group were dispersed throughout a large field so that the space between them averaged 34 metres or 110 feet. For both groups, the hive body was the same, two deep Langstroth boxes. To measure the amount of drift between the colonies, Seeley was remarkably cunning. He installed 10 of the 12 colonies for each group with a golden Italian queen. These queens contain the Cordovan gene, which is expressed through a lack of melanin, aka the dark colouring that we usually see on our honeybees. What this means is that any drones produced by these queens will not be the usual dark brown or black colour, but instead a bright yellow. In the remaining two hives for each group, Seeley installed a Carniolan queen, which means that all the drones from these colonies will have the dark brown and black colour that we are used to. These Carniolan colonies were placed in the centre of their group. Each individual queen was labelled with a paint dot to allow tracking of queen turnover via swarming or supersedure. During the two-year study period from June 2011 to May 2013, none of the colonies were treated for for Varroa mites, nor were they managed beyond monthly inspections from May to October. All colonies started as two-frame nucleus colonies and so spent the summer of 2011 building up size and strength. By the time winter of 2011 arrived, all colonies appeared to be in good health. In the summer of 2012, Seeley noticed some key differences between the colonies crowded together and those dispersed widely apart. Seven out of 12 colonies in each group swarmed, but those in the crowded apiary had poor success in requeening. Only two were actually successful. In comparison, the dispersed colonies had a success of five out of seven. Seeley postulates that this lack of success in the crowded apiary was due to young queens returning to the wrong colony and subsequently being killed. In fact, he notes that he twice found a dead queen lying outside of a colony entrance. He also noticed an increase in drifting drones in the crowded colonies. In two separate counts made in September 2011 and again in April 2012, before swarming occurred, Seeley found that 46% in September and 56% in April of the drones flying into the black Carniolan colonies were bright yellow. So the Cordovan drones had drifted into the Carniolan colonies. In the dispersed group of colonies, this level of drifting was dramatically lower at just 1-2%. to It's important to consider that this level of intercolony mixing seems likely to also occur with worker bees, especially if we consider that workers are returning to the hive with valuable resources and are thus less likely to be turned away. In the late summer of 2012, 
For a Roa-level sword in the two crowded colonies that had swarmed and successfully requeened, compared to those five that had also swarmed in the dispersed colonies. All of the seven colonies that had swarmed had low mite counts in June and July, but only the five dispersed colonies maintained these low levels as the year progressed. When the experiment ended in May 2013, Seely found that none of the 12 crowded colonies had survived. In comparison, five of the dispersed colonies were not only alive, but actively thriving. This is a very dramatic result, but Seeley cautions that it's just one small-scale study in one particular geographical area. So although it's not definitive, and that should be kept in mind, it is a valuable step in better understanding how the distance between wild colonies likely aids in their survival. This next section is called Living in Small versus Large Nest Cavities. In chapter 5, we learn that the wild colonies of the Arno forest live in tree cavities with an average volume of 30 to 60 litres or 8 to 16 gallons, which is far smaller than the hives most US beekeepers use for their colonies that average 120 to 160 litres, which is 32 to 42 gallons. We do this because we want to encourage the bees to make more honey for our consumption. Providing an extra 100 plus litres or 26 gallons of space enables the bees to store as much as 50 kilograms or 100 pounds of honey. Spacious hives also help decrease the risk of swarming. In chapter 7, we saw that a prime or first swarm leaves with nearly 75% of the colony workers, which provides the bees with enough hard workers to build the comb needed in their new home, but means a much smaller colony that needs to raise a new queen left behind for us, the beekeeper, which in turn means a dramatic smaller honey harvest. So although large hives are advantageous for beekeepers, they're less beneficial to the bees, mainly because they hinder the bees' natural reproductive process via swarming. After the arrival of Varroa mites, this issue has been compounded because a large colony of bees is likely to lead to a large Varroa infestation. Seeley himself demonstrated this via a study that compared two groups of hives, one group housed in small hives and one in large. With the help of two of his students, J. Carter Loftus and Michael L. Smith, Seeley set up two groups of 12 hives, each AP apiary location being 60 metres or 200 feet apart. In one group, each colony was housed in a small hive, which was 42 litres or 11.1 gallons in volume, consisting of one deep 10-frame Langstroth hive body. In the other group, colonies were established in a large hive, 168 litres or 44 44.4 gallons, which consisted of two deep Langstroth hive bodies for brood and two deeps for honey storage. These larger hives were thus set up as one would if they were hoping to maximise honey production, including the removal of any queen cells found during inspections. These 24 colonies were established in May 2012 and studied over the next two years. 
Once a month, from May through to October, the team tracked each colony's brood and adult bee populations, mite levels, signs of disease and signs of swarming and queen turnover. Honey production was also recorded. All 24 colonies started as five-frame nucleus colonies with young queens purchased from a California breeder. No miticide treatments were administered during the entire two-year study period. Celia and his students predicted that the small hive colonies would do better over the two years, as their smaller size would mean a greater chance of swarming, which would in turn mean a lower mite infestation due to the decrease in population and the subsequent brood break. A previous study had shown that a prime swarm can lead to a 35% reduction of varroa mites. And this makes sense when we consider the fact that around 70% of a colony's adult bees leave with the swarm and that 50% of varroa mites live on the adults. We have also seen how brood breaks can help mitigate varroa levels as they deprive the mite of the cat cell needed for the reproductive phase of their life cycle. When the experiment started in 2012, the average colony populations were equal amongst the group, but over the summer of 2013, there was a marked divergence in numbers. On average, the colonies housed in the small hives did not grow beyond 10,000 bees, compared to 30,000 in, in, in the large hive colonies. The average level of varroa mite infestation also started the same in both colony groups, but then changed in summer 2013. The small hive colonies maintained a roughly steady level of two mites per 100 bees, which is considered low, until September when it suddenly spiked dramatically up to six mites per 100 bees before dropping again the large hive colonies showed consistent high levels of mites, about 6 to 100 bees, that steadily increased over time. What's particularly interesting is that three of the small hive colonies experienced extremely dramatic spikes in mite counts in September, reaching levels of 15 to 17 mites per 100 bees. Wow, that is, that's a huge amount. So what contributed to these different varroa infestation levels? First, in 2013, nearly all 10 of the 12 small hive colonies swarmed, while only two of the large hive colonies did so. This likely explains why the mite levels in the small hive colonies were so low in 2013, as 10 of them experienced both the removal of varroa on adult bees that went with the swarm, as well as a brood break. It is not surprising then to see that the large hive colonies suffered higher winter mortality, 10 out of 12 colonies lost, compared to the small hive colonies, only 4 of the 12, due to this increased stress produced by varroa. But what to make of that shocking varroa mite count found in three of the small hive colonies in September 2013? Well, it turns out that this event coincided with the collapse of one of the large hive colonies housed only 60 metres or 200 feet away. When Seeley examined the collapsed colony, he found a pile of dead bees in front of the hive and almost no bees, no brood, no stored honey and very few mites inside. 
The floor of the hive was littered with dead bees, most with shriveled wings indicative of the deformed wing virus, and the chewed up wax flakes that indicate robbing had occurred of the food stores. So clearly this colony had collapsed due to its high mite levels and subsequent viral load and then had been robbed by nearby bees. It would make sense that many of these robbers came from the three small hive colonies that experienced the dramatic spike in varroa levels. As we've seen previously that when a bee is robbing, it provides a perfect stationary target for a mite to climb on board and be escorted to its new home. Of the four colonies of the small hive group that perished over winter, three were these colonies that had the high mite level spike. The fourth happened to be a colony whose queen became a drone layer in July 2013, and thus the colony lacked female brood to rear as a new queen, as well as essential workers of the hive, and subsequently perished. Seeley ends this section by saying that he wants to repeat this experiment to verify the results and intends to space the colonies further apart in order to minimise mite transmission between hives through drifting and robbing. I really hope he does go ahead with this um, as I believe it will further support his hypothesis that small hives do provide great benefits to honeybees. For some time, beekeepers have considered whether smaller cells might help in the battle against varroa mites. The idea is that the reduction in space between the developing bee and the wall of the cell might inhibit the movements of the immature mites, thus disrupting their development and reproductive success. In chapter 5, we saw how the wild colonies living in the Arno forest have an average worker cell comb of 5.19 millimetres, which is smaller than the standard beeswax foundation many beekeepers use of 5.38 millimetres. So is it possible that the smaller cell size assists the wild colonies in managing varroa? Sadly, studies have not supported this hypothesis. Seeley references three studies that looked at worker comb cell size. Researchers compared varroa mite population growth in hives using small cell 4.91 millimetres or 0.193 inches and standard cell 5.38 millimetres or 0.212 inches and they found no difference. Seeley decided to conduct his own experiment with one of his students, Sean R. Griffin. The pair established seven pairs of colonies that all had an equal varroa mite level or infestation. Each pair consisted of one hive with small cell and the other with standard. They also removed any drone comb the bees created in order to keep all comb consistently as worker cell only. Despite the clear difference in comb size, no changes in varroa mite infestation levels were detected. Seeley points out this is an entirely unexpected when you consider the fact that even in small cell comb, the varroa mite still has ample space to move around on the developing bee. When Seeley and his student, as well as a separate research team in Ireland, examined the ratio of bee thorax width to cell width, which is known as the fill factor, for small cell and standard, they found that bees in standard cells had a fill factor of 73% compared to the 79% fill factor of small cell comb. 
This difference is apparently not enough to inhibit mite movement upon the pupa, and thus small cell comb does not appear to function in any mite resistance. This next section is living with a high versus a low nest entrance. In chapter five, we learned that wild colonies of honeybees will almost exclusively establish nests high above the ground. This is extremely different to how we maintain our managed hives where the hive and its entrance are kept low to the ground for our own ease in management. Seeley considers why bees might choose high places to live when given the choice. One possibility is the increase in safety when taking cleansing flights in winter. When leaving a hive close to the ground, bees are prone to crashing on the ground where the cold can quickly lead them to be unable to generate the heat needed to engage their flight muscles, which then strands them on the ground and then, then die. It's also possible that high nest entrances are chosen to avoid the risk of being buried under snow, which would block off the airflow and trap the bees inside. It's also possible that the high nest cavities receive more sun exposure during the cooler months, which would help them maintain the warm microclimate inside the nest that the bees need to survive winter and raise their brood. Seeley posits that a large advantage of high nest cavities is avoiding predators such as bears. In 2002, Seeley found eight bee trees in the Arno forest and another 10 in 2011. Since noting their locations, he visited each colony three times a year to monitor their survival. These 18 bee trees have been intermittently occupied during the time that Seeley has visited them, with new colonies eventually arriving to replace any that might have died. Seeley points out that over 16 years of observation, black bears have clearly been present in the forest, but only once has he discovered a nest that was attacked by a bear. The tree containing this nest had actually been blown over during a storm, which dropped the nest entrance from 10.9 metres, or 36 feet above the ground, to just 1.2 metres, or a mere 4 feet. It's unsurprising then that a hungry bear would discover it when it was so conveniently located. What is interesting, however, is that although the tree showed signs of predation by a bear through claw marks around the entrance of the nest, the colony of honeybees inside survived this attack and were in fact thriving. More importantly for Seeley's purposes of learning why bees choose such lofty homes is the fact that none of the other 17 bee trees were ever detected by bears. In contrast, all of Seeley's bait hives have been discovered and predated upon at some point, which is why he had to eventually switch to raising all bait hives very high above the ground. Clearly, nesting high in trees helps protect bees from marauding bears and other terrestrial predators. Now we move on to a section called living with versus without a propolis envelope. In chapter five, we learned that honeybees nesting in the wild will coat the walls, ceiling and floors of their nest with propolis, which is an antimicrobial plant resin. In managed hives, honeybees do not mirror this behaviour. Instead, they use propolis to fill crevices between the frames, the supers and the lid, and that's pretty much it. Evidently, honeybees are stimulated to deposit propolis when small cracks and crevices are discovered. 
In a cavity within a tree, this leads to creating a thick envelope of propolis upon the inner surface of the nest, as well as around the entrance. And this makes sense if we consider that cracks and crevices provide a welcome environment to bacteria, which could reach dangerous levels if left untreated. The propolis coating works to prevent bacteria establishment in any crevices and thus inhibits its growth. A number of studies have looked at whether propolis can aid against the growth of foul brood diseases found in honeybees. So American foul brood, which is bacterial, and chalk brood, which is fungal. All of these studies found that propolis does work strongly to prohibit these pathogens. Marla Spivak and her colleagues at the University of Minnesota conducted an experiment that involved comparing the transcription levels of immune-related genes in worker bees living in hives with a propolis-coated interior and then a hive with an ethanol coating. After just seven days, those bees living in the propolis-coated hives had lower bacterial loads and lower levels of activity of genes involved in insect immune responses compared to those bees living in the ethanol-treated hive. This demonstrates that propolis extracts lower the level of bacteria and fungi in the treatment hives compared to the control group, which is the ethanol hives. The same group of researchers also compared colonies with and without a full propolis envelope over a period of two years. Twelve colonies were stimulated to create a propolis envelope by affixing plastic propolis trap material to the inner walls of the hive. The other twelve colonies were left with bare walls and thus their inhabitants did not coat them with propolis. Each year, the researchers measured the health of all 24 colonies. During the summer and autumn months, it was found that the activity level of several genes involved in insect immunity were consistently lower in the worker bees living in hives with a propolis envelope. This is an important discovery because a highly active immune system is energetically costly for the bee and thus can inhibit her activity in other areas such as brood rearing, food collection, comb building, etc. It was also found that those hives with a propolis envelope had greater levels of survival over the two-year study compared to the hives without. They also consistently had more brood in May and superior nutritional levels of the young worker bees for both years. Nutritional levels were assessed measuring the level of activity of the gene VG in both hive groups. VG is the gene that is activated to produce vitilodinin, which is their primary storage protein. In a healthy nurse bee, 40% of the protein in her body fluids will be vitilodinin because it's what these young bees use to produce royal jelly, which is then fed to the young larva and the queen. Healthy, well-nourished nurse bees are essential for colony success, so this experiment's re results have revealed just how vital the propolis envelope is to a honeybee colony and its overall health, and therefore its overall ability to survive. And that's it for this chapter, and thank goodness because I have been stumbling over my words through this whole thing. Um, I have a lot of editing to do, but there might still be a few snafus that end up in the final copy. So please forgive me. 
I don't know why I can't speak today, <laughs> but um, we'll get through it. So this is it for chapter 10. I hope you can see comparisons to what we've covered today to what I was seeing in my apiaries this year. And maybe some of what we discussed today can also be applied to your own experiences. At the very least, I hope that you found it interesting. So for the next episode, we're on to the final chapter. Hooray! And it's called Darwinian Beekeeping. It summarises everything that's been discussed in the book so far and then offers suggestions as to how we as beekeepers can use this new knowledge to better manage our colonies. I am very excited to get to this final chapter. It is the chapter I recommend everyone read, even flipping to the back and reading it first because it's so important. It has some really great information and it's so succinctly put As always, thank you guys so much for listening. I am just delighted to have listeners at all. Uh, Welcome again to anyone who found me through the Hive Jive. Uh, The response to my interview with John has been wonderful and it really means a lot to me. I have been contacted by some people who reached out after listening and that's wonderful. I really love to hear from you guys. I love to hear about how you're getting on with your chickens and your bees or any kind of homesteading activity at all I am always here and I'm ready to listen you can find me on all the social media but I'm most active on Instagram under homestead hens and honey and you can also email me directly at homestead hens and honey all one word at gmail.com As always, I will have in this episode description today a link to my website, which has um, everything I discussed today listed as clearly as possible, as well as some pictures from my apiary. Uh, I have a really great shot of the swarm cell that I found in my nucleus colony. And then I've also posted some pictures from the book The Lives of Bees to go along with what was discussed today and of course all rights are those of Thomas Seeley and um, anyone associated with that book. So please check out my um, episode description to find that link, go to the website and take a look at those pictures. I hope everyone listening is staying safe out there. Uh, We are going to move into flu season so don't forget your flu shot. I have yet to have mine but plan on doing it this week. Uh, I just really appreciate all of you so much. I really appreciate you bearing with me. Um, I have been struggling a little bit with my disappointment in what I've been seeing in my apiary now with these mite levels and losing that queen through swarming and not being able to get into the hive. But I really hope that by sharing my experience with you all that um, it could be helpful that uh, maybe it can either make you feel better about what you're seeing or maybe it can give you help in diagnosing what you're seeing. So thank you for being my sounding board, for letting me share all this stuff and for sticking with me as I ramble onwards and onwards with this ongoing book review. And as always, hug your hands and then wash your hands. Take care of yourselves. Talk to you in two weeks. Bye-bye.